All right. We want to continue our study in the end times. We have gone through the signs of the end times. That's really what we're working through, not the end times, but the signs of the times. What are the principal areas we're supposed to be looking at to show definitive evidence that we are within the generation of Christ's coming? We looked at signs of Israel, and they were very exciting, weren't they? Um, and we, we see so many of them completed. Uh, we see them having been in place really for almost a generation now, if you think of 1990. And I know uh, if you look at 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, what's a generation? And because people keep going back to 1948, they set 70 years. Maybe that's a, a generation. But as we saw from Scripture, that wasn't really the fulfillment to become a nation rather to be a nation overflowing its borders, that Israel be gathered from all the other nations. That couldn't happen until the fall of the Soviet Union. And we uh, looked through the prophecies there about the land, and we were seeing that being fulfilled about the Temple Mount. We then looked at the prophecies about the nations that had to be in place before Christ could come, um, that there certainly between the time of the Roman Empire and the end of the ages, there should have been two other global empires, uh, that are derived, the, the latter derived from the former. In other words, they are connected, they are linked together. Um, but it's the latter one that's going to be facing Christ, of course, chronologically. Uh, and we saw its connection to Europe, that we're not looking like the my predecessors and, and really contemporary people too were looking for this revived Roman Empire. Nowhere in Scripture does it call for us to do that. Um, Daniel's presented with the Roman Empire as being deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated. What we're looking for are the remnants of the Roman Empire, not the revival of the Roman Empire. Big difference, isn't it? But that's obviously what Daniel saw, was some remnants of the Roman Empire involved, but not a revival of it. And uh, so, big difference when we looked at that. And we looked at that empire that has come and gone, the intermediate empire between Rome and the one that's going to face Christ, has come and gone. We looked at Great Britain as that entity, uh, the British Empire, sun never sets on the British Empire, uh, that it came out of the sea, that is, it came to power by conquering other peoples, just like all the empires before it. But then you're going to have this different horn, this different beast that's unique. It's unlike all the other nations. It comes out of its land, not out of conquering other peoples. It's going to develop its natural resources. It's going to do miracles. And the specific ones that it mentions is, is uh, being able to bring fire down from heaven the sight of men. It's going to be able to institute a digital system of economy. Um, it's going to make pictures talk. And so if you can find a, co a, comp a company, <laughs> if you can find a country that an empire that's an empire status uh, that's doing that. But we also find from Habakkuk that it's not, even though it's very powerful and very strong, very influential, um, it's in great debt. Habakkuk 2 says it's in great debt because it never stops consuming. It's full of consumers. And so it's indebted to its bankers uh, and that it's doing violence, really. It, it claims to be a, a godly nation. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And so if you really examine its 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 documents, its language, uh, you'll find that it'll not be for God. It'll look like it, but if you really carefully study it, you'll hear the vileness of Satan himself coming through those very things. And so we identified that as the USA. We fulfilled every single thing there except for one or two um, 
And those one or two are not about something that has to be created new. It's simply the application of these things to its fullest degree. And so what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the time when you can't live without having access to talking pictures. That if you don't do it, you don't eat. That if you don't bow down and do it that way, you're not going to get access to survival. You'll be killed. Uh, and then similarly, that if you don't get this number, if you don't get this technology, you don't buy, you don't sell. And so you're going to have to acquiesce to two things, to a digitalization of your economy. You're going to acquiesce, acquiesce to an image that speaks. And again, that's not just in Revelation. That was repeated for us in Habakkuk. It says, woe to those people who make uh, that which is immaterial, brings it to life and makes it teach. And when immaterial things teach, that's the time to realize that those people, that nation, that society will be the ones that have to face Christ. And so we've had talking pictures for nigh on to 100 years. We're getting up to it, right? It's getting around. When was it? When did uh, talkies start coming out? 20s? So 90 years, about 90 years. And that's a big, 80 years is going to be a big number tonight, by the way, 80 to 90. Um, kind of an interesting number that keeps showing up in my study. But um, uh, we're looking at that, and so we see this nation that the Bible ex- describes to the T. And we don't even think about these issues. They're normal to us, but realize that not 100 years ago, the way you live would be radically strange to anyone else. Anyone coming here from 100 years ago would not recognize would not be able to really function here um, based upon how you, what, the things you take for granted. Okay? Uh, from communication, media, uh, to how you go to the store instead of go to the back 40 to get your food, um, and things along that line. So now we come to another category of an entirely different category. You have Israel, we have the nations. Now we have a category that I want to call signs of sin. And I want to introduce this by reminding us of something that we don't like to talk about very much. And it's uh, understandable, but it's unfortunate. We keep talking about the rapture, and we are excited about it, and it's a very positive thing. But what we need to remind ourselves, first of all tonight, is the rapture's purpose is to deliver us from judgment that is to rescue us from the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. And to us, we say, oh, we look forward, look forward. But then you realize, well, wait a minute. If God's going to pour out his wrath, what should the world look like? What is it that finally tips the scale in God's economy regarding sin that says, I'm done and I'm going to judge? I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to stop this here and now. And so when you think of the signs of times, we're talking about when does God say enough? Because when he says enough and he's ready to judge and pour out his wrath, then right before the outpouring of his wrath, he delivers his people. We're going to look at several examples in Scripture tonight out of the Old Testament. We really have, I believe, um, well, I have one, two, three, four, five. I have six references here to the outpouring of God's wrath. Um, 
one, two, three, four of them are against uh, uh, the nations, other nations, the enemies of Israel, and two of them are against God's people. Um, not that they were believers, they were God's people genetically, but not spiritually. And one is Israel, and the other one is Judah. So the northern tribe and the southern tribe. And so don't feel like, oh, God poured out His wrath against His people. No, even in that situation, He preserved those remnants who were really, truly following after Him. He kept them from experiencing that. Sometimes, some of them He, he uh, preserved in the midst of it, uh, led them off, but none of them experienced the pouring of God's wrath, although they were, did go into exile, for example, Daniel and his friends. Um, so we're going to look at the historical things and so uh, that bring God to wrath, what kinds of sins we should be looking for, and the distinguishing between sins in society and sins among His people. And that becomes very important when we get to the New Testament because the New Testament does not dwell on the sins of the world as the signs of the times. If you read the first three chapters of Revelation, who does God take to task for sin? It's not the world, but the church. When we, we're going to read in Timothy, we're going to read in Peter, um, that the place that we're looking for, that we're going to examine, and we're going to really do that more next week, is the church. We're going to look right into the church and say, when you see this, not only being practiced by Christians, quote-unquote Christians, but being taught as truth from the pulpits and from the Sunday school classes and from the uh, Christian blog sites or whatever. When you see this being taught, realize that this is it. God, that's gonna, God's done. And so the judgment to come isn't just against the nations and against the world. I earnestly believe that the judgment to come is on the false church as well. And we're going to look at that more, like I said, next week, and maybe I have to go the week after that. So what I want to do tonight is take us on a little historical journey um, to lay a foundation for next week of what did it take in the past for God to say enough? And you know pretty much where we're going to go. And uh, so let's just start downstream. We'll do it chronologically. And as we go along, I want you to pull out from there the sin. I want you to see its extent. And I want you to see its duration. And then I want you to measure God's patience. So let's start with Genesis chapter 6. That's where we have to go. Genesis, you knew since we're going to do it chronologically. And uh, these are historical books. We're going to start in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 6, this is the flood. Let's look at what God is seeing happening. It says that there's some wicked things going on here. Um, I'm not going to try to explain it all. That's not my purpose tonight. I really want to look at some other things. It says, verse 1, when the, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them, sons of God, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And I want you to notice that. That's going to keep coming up. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. No boundaries. No right and wrong. Uh, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is in dead flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. God shortens their life. That's not enough. Shortening men's lifespans was enough. Now, some, well, he's going to do that through the flood, but still wasn't enough. There were giants on the earth in those days. Also afterward, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they were more children to them. There, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intent, that is every plan or desire of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. There was no pursuit of goodness. There was no uh, elevation of it. People just wanted after evil in their heart all the time. And so we, uh, so what's God going to do? The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, creeping thing, birds, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So he was favored by God. God looked and looked and uh, we'll keep... Then they have the genealogy, the look of verse 12. So, uh, verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. Okay, so first we found uh, a level of moral involvement that displeased God. I don't, I'm not going to explain where these angels um, know that angels don't marry people. And these people didn't just have sexual relations. They were married. They took wives. They dwelt with them. Okay, so if you believe that these were angels coming in, it wasn't just uh, coming in and birthing babies. They were dwelling together, living together. And uh, so it's silliness to think that that's what that was. And um, so we come into this setting, and so you have some immoral action there um, of this mixing of two races of men, I believe, uh, and we this intermarriage. We find them wanting after evil all the day long. They just want to do whatever they want. And then thirdly, violence. These three, God was fed up with. Okay? So you have uh, acts of immorality. Even though they were wives, it was not that which pleased God. Um, That they were evil in their heart. They just wanted to glorify and do evil and violence. And God says, for that, I'm going to rid the earth. Um, How long did it take before he did that? Well, Moses started building. I'm sorry, did I say Moses? Noah. Sorry, thank you. Noah started building. How long did he build? Anybody know right offhand? Yes, ma'am. How long? A hundred years. So how long after God was fed up with it before it actually happened that he was going to destroy them? A hundred years. 100 years, almost about 100 years. Took him to build it, and uh, God fills the ark. Noah doesn't go out there and uh, on safari to find these critters. They come to him. God's in the ark and says, Noah, come in. Doesn't say go in, come in, which means God was in there. And right before the flood happens and the breaking open of the heavens, the breaking open of the depths of the, of the waters of the deep, um, Noah enters the ark with his family. And so when we look at this, we see, well, God is fed up with something, with this. He doesn't destroy them immediately, but he finds grace with uh, Noah, recognizes the necessity of of delivering Noah. Noah's going to have to exercise his faith for a hundred years. He doesn't just build an ark. He's preaching the whole time as well. Um, And so a hundred years, God patiently gives men time to repent they hearing this message, they have a chance to turn it around, but they reject that. hundred years later, boom, they're gone. Flood occurs, the outpouring of evil. And so they're evil intents. They are having children in an in a ungodly manner. And we find they are full of violence. They're filling the land with violence. 
Okay, so that's one down. We got five to go. Let's keep pressing on. Keep in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 18. The next outpouring of the wrath. And by the way, Noah did not see one thing of the flood. He saw the after effects, but he did not see the flood. How do I know that? How many windows were in that thing? And it was shut. Noah did not feel one drop of water hitting him before he got in. It wasn't a close call. He wasn't out there, uh, got lost using the restroom or, you know, the wind blew him away. He didn't have to go chase uh, the last bunny to get it on there. Otherwise, we'd only have a male bunny. You know, none of that. He was safely on there before any of it started. Very important theme. All right, so we come to chapter 18 of uh, Genesis, and we have a second outpouring of God's wrath. This is directed towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, we jump in in verse 20. He's talking to Abraham, and he makes this statement to Abraham. Or actually, he's making the statement to his, to his angelic friends that he's with them as he's visiting with Abraham, telling him about the coming birth of Isaac. Um, in verse 20, he says, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord and he argues and they or not argues, but he bargains with them, uh, trying to lower this and lower this. And uh, finally, we come to chapter 19 and uh, we find the two angels visiting Sodom in the evening. And uh, the, the angels are saying, you're going to have to get out of here. And we find the particular sin among all the sins there. Um, is the immorality, particularly, of course, homosexuality, where we get the term sodomites. You sodomize someone. Um, uh, and we find this term used here. This is referring to homosexual activity, that that is the sin. Now, I don't have a time frame on this. We're not as specific here on the information um, we know that for a season there has been an outcry that God has heard. And it has gone on for how long? We don't know. We know that Lot has been there for a season uh, and he's been preaching against them and that he's been vexed in his, whole, in his soul day after day. Okay, so this has not been something new that just arrived on the scene. The outcry against Sodom has gone on for some time. They have had contact with Abram. Remember, Abram delivered Sodom and Gomorrah when they were carried off captive with Lot. He really wanted to save Lot, but he delivered Sodom and Gomorrah at the same time. Melchizedek shows up. Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Um, the Sodom and Gomorrah kings want to offer them everything they have to Abram. Abram says, no, lest you say, you made me rich. I don't want anything to do with that. Um, give the men what they deserve, and we'll call even Stephen. Um, and so they had contact with righteousness, um, but it was evident already that um, there was some um, wickedness there. And God says the outcry has come. How long? We don't know. But we do know the sin. And the sin is the homosexuality. And in chapter 19, we have the whole indication of it. Uh, and it's to the point that even virgin daughters are uh, not good enough for them. And, of course, we find it penetrating even Lot's own family in the desire after uh, that city to look back and, and what happened to his wife there. 
And so we look at this, and again, uh, the impact upon Lot's family is tremendous. Uh, and God says enough. But the angels say something very interesting. And uh, they say um, in verse 15 of chapter 19, we'll pick it up. Uh, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Um, get out of here. The punishment is going to come. And we don't want you caught up in it. He lingered. Uh, uh, and finally, he was kind of hesitant. He just kind of wasn't sure he wanted to go. And the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. They basically drug him out of the city. He was attached to the city that much. Even knowing he was about to be destroyed, here's a righteous man who couldn't decide whether he wanted to leave or stay, knowing what was coming. They had to drag him out. Verse 17, It came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then the Lord's then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed, if you're, now your servant has found favor in your sight. He's getting his right mind about himself, finally. Um, don't let me go to the mountains. Something bad's going to happen to me. He's still worried. He wants to go to the city nearby. Um, and uh, they agree to let him go to that city. And then he finally runs away from that city as well. He realizes, what am I doing? I've got to do it God's way. But there's a little verse in here. Um, verse 22. This is the angel again saying, Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Um, I'm not going to outpour... I can't destroy this place until you're gone. And that's a very fascinating term because twice now he's warned them, if you stay here, you will be punished with them. But then he says, I can't do it until you're gone. And essentially what he's communicating to a lot is that Listen, if you're a follower of God, you have to leave. But if you choose to stay, then you're denying God. And you will be consumed. And that's very important next week. You will be consumed. If you get that attached to this world, that you can't decide whether you want to be raptured or stay. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'll decide after the rapture. And, and the church is encouraging that. They really are. Millions and millions and millions are going to get saved. There's going to be a great revival right after the rapture. Because they're going to see that happen and everyone's going to get saved. No. You will be destroyed with the world if you're still here. Decide today whose you are. For the day of wrath is a day of punishment, not of deliverance. You want to be delivered? Delivered now. This is the day of salvation. Okay, great example there in Lot. So we have the sin of homosexuality. So we're looking for violence. We're looking for immorality. We're looking for people doing what they want. Um, and we're looking for homosexuality. And again, not just a single occurrence, but societally acceptable for a season, for a period of time. All right, let's press on. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1 and 2. This is Egypt. 
And you guys know what God's going to do to Egypt with the plagues. And He's going to let my people go and all of that. He's not going to uh, destroy them, but He's going to move with His hand against them uh, directly. He's going to listen to the groaning of God's people. And I think that's a very important aspect of it as well, that God's people are going to be under tribulation. Not the hands of God, but the hands of wicked men. So in Genesis chapter 1, what's going on? Israel is in the land. I'm sorry, Exodus. Did I say Genesis? Exodus chapter 1. Israel's in the land of Egypt. Um, Joseph brought them there. They had great favor for a few hundred years. And then a Pharaoh comes up into reign that doesn't know Joseph, doesn't have any commitments to them, sees this large group of, of uh, a nation-sized group of people being blessed, uh, knows that they are getting to the point of challenging even the, the population of his, the rest of the nation, um, and is concerned about them. He enslaves them. Um, and then he does something else. He starts to say, we're going to have to do population control. We've got to slow down the birth rate of these people. We're going to do that by killing the boys, keeping the girls alive. Kill the boys, keep the girls. Now, we usually look at that and think, well, that going on for a month or so. But it didn't. I see nowhere where this command was rescinded until Moses shows up, 80 years old. And in fact, Moses' parents obeyed the command, throw him in the river. The first command was midwives kill them when they're born. Just tell the just tell them, oh, your son died in birth. Um, but they wouldn't do that. They honored God, and God honored them for doing that. Uh, and so they were committed to keeping the, these little Hebrew children alive. Um, and so then the command went out that well, if the midwives don't do it, here's the command: any baby boys among the Hebrews gets thrown in the river, and Moses' mom obeys her government. Doesn't she? Did she throw her kid in the river? Yes, she did. Didn't she do it? She tossed that kid right in there. She made him a little basket and made pitch around so he'd float, but she tossed him in the river. Gives you a whole different perspective of your relationship to your government, doesn't it? This is a government that is Practicing infanticide. We're going to kill babies. And um, we think, oh, that's the worst sin there is out there. Um, and uh, it is. It's a horrific sin. And we are all sure that we should vote accordingly, according to that sin that we should all, you know, this. Um, but this was being practiced, and it was part of the the evil that moves God to judgment. And we shouldn't be shocked at it. We shouldn't. We should see it going on and our response needs to be, God's going to judge that. You cannot stop it. Not by your vote, not by your party getting in control, not by legislation. Once it starts down that road, it is not your responsibility to stop it. It is one of the sins that fills up God's wrath. And so they're murdering kids. How long are they murdering them? Well, for at least 80 years. 
Moses is one of the guys tossed in the river. He survives because Pharaoh's daughter falls in love with him. Oh, he's got such pretty brown eyes. You know, and, and so she takes him, raises him. He's 40 years old before he's out on his own. He's 40 years as a shepherd. He's 80 years old when he comes back to Egypt when God has finally said, enough of this. 80 plus years. We don't know how long this was in place before Moses came out. So between 80 and 100 years, God put up with this. And then he finally just said, it's going to stop now. You let my people go. You quit killing them. And when they said no, God let them have it. Right between the eyes. Infanticide. The killing of babies. You're really knowing where next week is going, aren't you? Okay? Let's keep going. So that's three down. We're halfway through and I got <laughs> 12 minutes. All right. Second uh, Kings chapter 17. Now we come to God's people, Israel. Second Kings 17. Uh, we have Israel that's going to be assaulted and we have a description of their sin. Let's look at it very quickly. Uh, this is a summary chapter. It's a cool chapter because it kind of uh, encapsulates all of what was happening in first in second Kings. Uh, it sits here telling us what's going on in Israel, their influence on Judah, and it kind of summarizes all that was transpiring with is with the uh, with uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes. So let's pick up in verse nine. I'm just going to read through this. I'm not going to comment extensively, but just I isolate the sin and look at the duration. It says, also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and on every green tree. There they burned incense all on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I set, sent to you by my servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven. That's the stars. Astrology. And they served Baal. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And then it's going to go on and talk about Judah a little bit there. Um, but let's look at this a little bit. You, you have a great list there, and we can be extensive in that list. But among the people, um, it primarily is all these expressions of idolatry. Because once you get into idolatry, it's going to send you down all kinds of roads of sin. Once you start saying, I want to be like them. Why can't we be more like the world? 
Why can't the church be more like the world? Why can't our nation be like their nation? Why can't our God be like their gods? And they started worshiping those gods and practicing the things even to the point of child sacrifice. Why can't we be like them? Why can't we be seeker-friendly? Oh, that's next week, sorry. Um, I got a little carried away, sorry, sorry, sorry. So this idolatry, and we learn from the Meyer prophets the syncretism that is there. And we have this, and jump. we're still in chapter 19, 17 there. Jump ahead, verse 28, um, has some interesting things. It says, then one of the priests from the... No, I'm not going to get into that. I'll get into that. I don't have time. Um, and so they, they, they were doing this evil. Now, the evil king of Israel that was up there, his name was Manasseh. And he even had his own son as a child sacrifice. He did this. And he led the people in this. And so we know that king in this time when these practices were being done of witchcraft, of all this occult, all this activity. Um, and the occult is there. It's, it's got to be. It, it, and it's not out there. It's in here. When occult practices enter the church, look out. So, Manasseh was king. He reigned for 55 years. At what point in those 55 years he committed these heinous acts, we don't know. But he reigned for 55 years. And, and God didn't destroy Israel in his life, but God remembered his sin. Ammon was king of Israel for two years after Manasseh. Josiah, a godly, godly king, was king for 31 years. The godliest king in Israel's history reigned for 31 years, but that wasn't enough because God still remembered the sin of Manasseh and Israel. Jehoash reigned for three months. He was supplanted by the king of Egypt, by Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim lasted 11 years, but in the midst of those 11 years, he was uh, a subservient to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I'm sorry, of a, he was subservient. No, I'm sorry, I'm giving you all the history of Judah. I mixed up my things. Did I mix up my things? Yes. I just gave you Judah. I jumped ahead. All right. Forget all that. We'll come back to it in two minutes. So Israel is serving as, as engaged in this, and God says, enough. Here comes the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to do some damage to them. Elisha predicts it. But it's really the Assyrians are going to destroy Judah. I'm sorry, Israel. God tolerated it. For a long time, if you look at the prophets, God tolerated it for about a generation and a half, two generations. So what about the Assyrians, the ones that God used to judge them? Well, the Assyrians took out Israel. That was their job. God designed them for that. They also wreaked havoc in Judah, and they come up against Jerusalem. They've pretty much sacked most of, his, most of Judah, the southern kingdom. They come up against Jerusalem, and they're confronted with this massive army surrounding Jerusalem and its trouble. Second Kings chapter 18, Sennacherib. 
He's got him surrounded, and then he does this stupid, stupid thing, but he's confronted by a very, very wise king. So we have this conflict here, and Sennacherib comes up, and he starts yapping his mouth off to the people of Jerusalem. He's trying to get them to surrender. Just surrender. Look at verse 21 of 2 Kings 18. Well, let's back up and read uh, verse 19. Then Rabshakeh, which is Sennacherib's spokesperson, said to them, in Hebrew, by the way, he knew their language, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, which what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you are able on your part to put riders on them, I'll give you weapons. <laughs> I'll even help you arm yourselves, is what he's saying. Have I now come up without the Lord against this place and destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up to the, against this land and destroy it. Then Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabasha, speak. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we do not stand it. We do not speak. Do not speak to us in Hebrew. And they're hearing the people who are on the wall. They didn't want everyone else to hear it. Just tell us it in Aramaic. We know Aramaic. We don't want the people to hear the rest of what you say. Maybe we can wheel and deal with you. Well, it gets worse. He says, "No, I'm going to speak to everybody um, because uh, you're eating your own waste." You know, this is how bad it gotten in Jerusalem. Let's look at what his voice says. Uh, what else does he have to say? Verse 29. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present. Come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, every one of you his own fig tree, every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain, new wine, and blah, blah, blah. Um, lest you persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Verse 33, verse 34. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephavarim and Hena and Eva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And then we come to chapter 19. The prophet comes up and says, you know what? God's heard enough. And, Sen and Sennacherib's servant is going to say some more blasphemous things. Hezekiah is going to pray a prayer. Lord God, forgive us. And he's going to repent. God says, I've had enough of this Sennacherib guy. Yes, I used him to punish Samaria. That's Israel. But that's it. He has blasphemed my name. And so, verse 35 of chapter 19, it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses 
all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping the temple of his God, that his sons, names them, struck him down with a sword. He was killed by his own sons in his temple, worshiping the God that he was declaring was stronger than the God of Israel. When does God say enough? And you're blaspheming his name. And this wasn't recent. I mean, the guy had, had been sacked all of Israel. He had taken over all of southern Judah even and was sitting there just ready to sack Jerusalem. I mean, that, he was ready to finish the job. And he started boasting against God. God says, no way. No way. When you start boasting against me and say, who are you? Who is your God? He can't deliver you. Then that's going to move God hand against that kind of sin and then judah i already gave you the timeline of judah which is about 90 years depending upon when you want to look at or if you want to press it into the jehoiakim's reign and into the final destruction of jerusalem then you're looking at closer to 100 years between manasseh's sin and god's judgment of judah and what was it there again uh, for them was Manasseh slaughtered his own kid, just like the northern tribes did. But then they also did something else in Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah was the prophet. He wasn't around when Manasseh was there. He uh, came on the scene later. God says, I remember Manasseh's sin, and I'm not going to forget that baby, that guy. He killed, he shed innocent blood is what was said of him. But we come to Jeremiah 16, and we have this powerful statement by God against the generation that did actually experience God's judgment. And I want to pick up in verse 11. Well, verse 10. And it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Why is God angry with us? We don't know what we've done. Or what is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? <laughs> Verse 11, Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. Alright, your forefathers have done evil. Now, brace yourself. And Manasseh is listed back here in chapter 15. He's listed back here and said that I, I don't, I, 15 verse 4, I, I still remember Manasseh and his sin. I remember him. I'm not forgetting him. You're being judged for his sin. But then verse 12 is this last straw with regards to God's people. And you have done worse than your fathers. Wow. What is worse than that huge list we read? What is worse than all the wicked acts of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21? What is worse than that? Well, here we go. Each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. And that generation, God says, I'm going to destroy you. How bad is it? 
See, back in chapter 15, verse 1, God says, even if Moses and Samuel were here right now, they couldn't save you. Remember, Moses convinced God not to destroy Israel multiple times. Samuel did the same thing on behalf of the first king of Israel. Um, deterred, deterred, deterred God's judgment um, and convinced God. He says, if you had both of them on your side as your lawyers right now, they wouldn't stop me. Why? Because you're doing worse than your forefathers. You're doing whatever you think is right. You have your own plans, your own strategies. And even after hearing that, uh, if you go later on, and Jeremiah is preaching, 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 you get to chapter 18. Um, verse 11, it's same, it's two, same two verses, but a couple chapters later. Jeremiah says, Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. These are the people who says, what's our sin? We don't know. We haven't done anything. And here's their response to preaching that says, repent. Turn away. Here's what their response was. That is hopeless. Verse 12. We will walk according to our own plans. And we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. We'll fix it ourselves, God. Thank you very much. And God says, you're done. You're done. So next week, we're going to look at these two categories of sin. The sin of the world that we saw in the flood, in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Egypt, Assyria. And then we're going to look at the sin of God's people in Israel and Judah. And it might take me two weeks, two more weeks, to really categorize and go through those and demonstrate that they have been around and they have been around long enough. God is careful. He is deliberate in His judgment. And these people have proven that. He seems to give them a hundred years of room between its commitment and its conclusion. Where He has been fed up and now it just gets worse and worse and they have added sin to sin, and God is justified. But during that period, all during that period, they have been preached to by His prophets. Repent, 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 and no repentance was going on. There was no revival in the land. Yes, there was a good king that slipped in there for 30 years. But his son was so evil, God killed him in three months. Well, didn't kill him, but took him out of power in three months. His own son. Because just having a a good king for a season, a period of time, was not genuine revival. Even though the king tried to institute it, the people resisted, really. And went right back into it within months of Josiah's death. And so we are going to see a period of time that is essentially full of sin, even though there might be a decade or two here and there, they might say, well, it seems like things were going really well back then. But in fact, it was simply catching our breath to sin worse. So these are the sins. This is historical. What caused God to say, enough, I'm going to judge? And the reason we're looking at these is because if the rapture's on the immediate horizon, 
then that means also God's judgment must be on the immediate horizon for they are simultaneous. And so can we see this sin around, not just in these days, but for a period of time, for I believe that God has set a pattern here that He will tolerate it for a couple generations before He puts an end to it. To just see, how committed are you to this sinful pattern? And then He'll stop it. And so that's how we're going to examine this, um, not by looking at necessarily today's news, but by looking and seeing, do we have a pattern of sin stretching back this far? And not, it's not always there. Obviously, the boasting by Assyria um, was a pretty quick stop. Um, and uh, the Sodom and Gomorrahites, that was a pretty quick stop, but we don't know how long they were, the outcry was going into them. But um, it seems to be the pattern that God says, I'm going to give you time. You're going to get some good preaching. You're going to resist it and reject it. And that really seems to be what we're going to get out of the New Testament next week when we get into that as well. So we're going to look at those two categories of sin. Rugged stuff. Next two weeks are going to be more of the same, but more specific to our period. This is a historical study. Now we're going to get into, is this going on today? Can we see this? And we're going to look at Timothy and Peter and Revelation and see, are we seeing that? That's, are we seeing enough for long enough that God's going to say, I'm ready to judge these people? Because that has to occur if the rapture is imminent. Let's pray.